Hi, I'm Kathy Rushing, host of the podcast Committed, The Entrepreneur Marriage. If your middle name is Restless and you identify with words like innovator, dreamer, changemaker, creative, independent, or you are married to an entrepreneur or heaven help you, you're both entrepreneurs, this podcast is for you. The entrepreneurial journey can be a little wild at times, like uncharted territory. Join me as I talk with others who are at various stages of the entrepreneur process. We'll explore the wisdom and insights they have gained while navigating the ups and downs of the entrepreneur journey. You'll discover that there are many couples who have found ways to thrive in both their marriage and business. I've been looking forward to today's interview with Dorcas Chang Tosin for over a year. I reached out to her last year, but she and her family were living in Nairobi, Kenya, one of several international moves they have made while growing Delight. Dorcas is the author of Start, Love, Repeat, How to Stay in Love with Your Entrepreneur in a Crazy Startup World. She'll be releasing her new book, Let There Delight, How One Social Enterprise Brought Solar Products to 100 Million People, on July 21st, 2020. Our conversation weaves an overview of the startup and growth of Delight with the personal challenges she faced as the company grew. Delight is the business her husband Ned and his Stanford Business School cohort started in 2007. They began this social enterprise with the goal of bringing inexpensive lighting options to some of the poorest areas in the world. It has been a challenging journey, but Dorcas and Ned have creatively found ways to thrive in the midst of growing delight. Hey, Dorcas, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Kathy? Oh, I'm so good. I'm so good. I wish we didn't live so far apart. I'd really love to just sit down with you and have tea or coffee or whatever. Yes, it it would be great. (laughs) Yep. Um, Your book, Start, Love, Repeat, How to Stay in Love with Your Entrepreneur in a Crazy Startup World, came out about the time that I was starting to look for resources for entrepreneur marriage. You know, my background is a marriage and family therapist and I was looking to niche down a little bit and kind of specialize. And so it's been about two and a half years ago. Is that when your book came out? Yeah, that's about right. 2017? Mm-hmm. End of 2017. Okay. And when I found that, I was like, oh my gosh, I have found my soul sister. <laughs> and then I read your book and um, it just, it really resonated with me. So thank you for writing it. Of course. Um, we'll get into that. But you and I had a Skype chat, I think we it was did. in November of 2017, and you had a new little baby, and I just so appreciated being able to touch base with you, and we've had some email conversations since then, and um, here we are today, minus Ned, Dorcas's yes. husband Ned is very private, she said, and really doesn't want to be interviewed, and I, I understand that, but 
Yeah, he was very gracious to allow you to write as you did in your book. He was. He mm -hmm. was. And, and just to assure everyone, Ned got to read every word of the book before I submitted it to the publisher. So he knew exactly what I was putting out there into the world. And nothing was um, publicized without his permission right. and his understanding. And, and even though he is uh, more private than me, um, he totally understands that I am uh, wanting to use some of the challenges that we've been through as a couple as a way to support and encourage and help others. So um, knowing that it's going toward a good cause, I think makes him more willing to put some of our dirty laundry out there for folks. Yeah. Well, I think you did a beautiful job of being vulnerable, as Brene Brown would say, you know, vulnerable enough that your readers go, oh, somebody else <laughs> is on mm -hmm. this journey. But then you also really did a great job of providing resources and um, background information. What, what prompted you to write the book? I needed help for myself. So uh, at that point, Ned and I had been married for about nine years. He started business school as soon as we got married, and then he started his company while he was still in business school. So essentially his company has um, existed almost as long as our marriage has, and it has defined so much of what it has meant for us to be together and to relate to one another and to figure out how to do life together. And I just kept thinking, okay, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. We're going to figure this out. It's going to be good. It's going to be fine. Um, and it just, you know, there were seasons where sometimes it felt a little bit better and then it would get crazy again and then it get a little better and then it get crazy again. <laughs> and, and then by, by year nine of our marriage, we had um, finally had our first child. So we had put that off for quite a number of years because the startup was just so demanding yeah. on our lives and there just wasn't space for us to think about expanding our family. But we finally were ready to do it. We had our first child and it was just brutal because I suddenly realized that there were so many times that I felt like a single parent even though I wasn't, mm -hmm. uh, because Ned was traveling a ton, working a ton, and it led to a lot of conflict and resentment between us. And it made me realize, I don't think this journey is getting any easier. And we need help because whatever we're doing now, it's not working. Yeah. And, and so then I started looking and poking around and, you know, like, like you were saying, looking around for resources. Mm -hmm. And as I'm mm -hmm. sure you found, there's not that much out there. I mean, there's a little bit here and there, yeah. a couple of the books that have been written on this topic. Um, but, but in terms of like, I really wanted to hear from someone who was kind of still in the middle of it and who, who didn't have it all neatly tied up into a bow and had it all figured out and was on the other side of an exit and was living off of the millions, you know, that they, they had earned. Um, I just wanted to know, like, what is the real nitty gritty truth? You know, is what I'm experiencing normal? Um, yeah. Is there anything that can be done about it? Or is it just hard, you know, and stop and there's nothing, nothing to do. And, right. um, and so then I decided, well, since this book doesn't exist and, I happen to be a writer, maybe I can just write the book that I need for myself. And so I spent about two and a half years researching wow. the book. So interviewed a lot of 
MFTs like yourself, um, talk to a number of coaches, executive coaches who work with entrepreneurs and their spouses. Um, and it was great, actually, because I felt like I got so much free therapy out of the process. <laughs> That's a good so, benefit. Yes. And they were so generous with their time and so kind and giving of their expertise and, and what they had seen and learned over the years. And then I got to talk to about 70 different entrepreneurial couples. Wow. Um, and I feel like that was really the heart of it, right? I mean, that's where you really get into the trenches of, mm. of what works, what doesn't, what is, you know, what is the most heartbreaking and the most encouraging and the most beautiful thing out of this journey of um, trying to do a startup together and do life together. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's hard for me to put into words, why entrepreneur marriage? Why not just marriage? Isn't it just any marriage? And I think one of the things that I took away from your book is you did a good job of kind of delineating the different risks. And um, I wanted to read a, a quote from your book. The allure of an adventurous, fulfilling, and inspirational life is something that few of us are immune to. But the entrepreneurial path exacts a cost, almost all of which is personal. Entrepreneurs live at the epicenter of the struggle, and you capitalize that struggle, mm. and breathe and bleed every high and low. This inevitably affects their health, their character, their priorities, and their loved ones. And that would be me and you. Yeah. And, you know, as you said, while there are a lot of boards Mark was part of C12, which is a Christian peer board. There's Vistage. There's, I think it was called Young Entrepreneurs. But there are a lot of resources for an entrepreneur. But even when Mark was in C12, there really wasn't anything for the wives. Now, I think they've added some. And I say wives. I don't know the statistics, but observations from my own backyard yeah. are that the riskier businesses are usually started by men. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly there are lots of women and our experiences. Yes, yes. It does. It does skew male mm -hmm. entrepreneurs in general. And then certainly what you're saying with the higher risk. Yeah. Yeah. When I read it, of course, being a therapist, the sections on communication were all very good, but it was sort of like, yeah, yeah, I've got that piece. <laughs> but there was a section and a term that I was not familiar with um, satisficing. Uh, you talk oh. about how Steve Jobs and I think Mark Zuckerberg, uh -huh. they wear the same shirt every day. Yes. And it's a term. Let's see, your resource was the neuroscientist and psychologist Daniel Levitin, mm -hmm. author of The Organized Mind, Mind, Thinking Straight in the Age of Information Overload. And he talks about or how he describes satisficing, I guess it's a combination of satisfying and sufficing, like suffice is good enough. But it's one way that people with a lot on their minds simplify it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the premise is being that each of us, our brains only have so much capacity to process mm -hmm. uh, certain things at a certain amount of time. And so if you have a lot going on, you know, that's why we can only listen to one person talking to us at one time. And if a second person jumps in, and then certainly if a third person jumps in, then everything just starts to get all jumbled in right. our brain. And, and entrepreneurs have 
so much going on, right? I mean, there is no such thing as being an entrepreneur and just wearing one hat. <laughs> they are right. all wearing at least a dozen hats. You are doing finance, you're doing sales, you are doing admin, um, you're doing marketing, you're doing HR. And it just, it is so much to carry in your mind that the rest of life kind of begins to fade into gray. And, and yeah. it's those little details of what am I going to eat for breakfast? <laughs> what, am, what shirt am I going to wear today? Um, what gas station am I going to stop at on the way home? Like those things just start to not matter. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, fine. You know, I'll just wear a gray t-shirt every day and, you know, eat the exact same cereal every day to simplify my life as much as possible so that I can save the best of my brain processing power for yeah. my business. But unfortunately, I think it's very easy for family and marriage and spouses to kind of get thrown into that category of, well, this is something I don't need to put as much time and thought into. Yeah. And you went on to talk about how that spills over and impacts the spouse because the spouse is picking up all of those pieces. Yeah. And I think if that was a term or if I, I mean, I think at some level I was aware of that because at the time that Mark started his business, we had three children. I think our oldest was in high school. So we had like high school, junior high, elementary. I had a private practice, but pretty much everything doctor's appointments, mm -hmm. uh, sports practices, music practice, anything extracurricular. Yep. Lots of things fell on my plate. And some of it I took on willingly, just trying to do what I could to help because I saw his stress level. And I knew that ultimately this is our business. It impacts our family. And I think I wasn't very good at expressing my needs at that point. So, mm -hmm. you know, it did are, create yeah. some resentment at times. But I think that term and that concept of, you know, having a term like that and being able to talk about it then, uh, it's the, the benefit of labeling anything, right? Mm -hmm. When we label it, we can then begin to, to deal with it. So, well, I... I just, I'm so appreciative of, of Ned for, um, like I said, his willingness to, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit on your marriage. Um, but I also really appreciate how you, you brought in such practical resources. So let me just say at the beginning, if you're listening to this and you have not read this book yet, go straight to Amazon and order it. It's great. <laughs> And you are about to birth another book baby, right? Yes. Yes. So tell um, us about that. Sure. It, it, it does seem an interesting thing that happens. I think anyone who is married to an entrepreneur will find that your life cannot help but be somehow intertwined with, with the work and the life of your spouse. And um, so my first book, Start, Love, Repeat, came out of my experience being married to Ned and then um, my second book, which is coming out in um, July, July 21st, is actually a book about the history of Ned's company, which is called Delight. So they provide solar powered products for families living without reliable electricity in developing countries. So things like solar powered lights, phone chargers, radio, uh, 
even television um, and fans uh, for those who live in hotter climates. And they recently, just in January of this year, celebrated the milestone of reaching their 100 millionth customer. Wow, that's awesome. And it's been an incredible ride to get here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're going to get into of, that whole yes, story. <laughs> so um, moments that felt really great. And I would say maybe more moments that felt kind of awful. And many, many, many times that we thought the company just wasn't even going to make it. So the fact that we're here, yeah. uh, that the company's still standing, that we're surviving this pandemic, that... Um, you know, they're continuing to make a great impact in the world. That was something we thought was really worth celebrating. And, um, and also wanting to tell the story of how it happened because a social enterprise, which is what Ned's company is, mm -hmm. right? So a for-profit company with a very strong social mission. Uh, I think that there are still skeptics out there of whether or not it's really possible to have that kind of company and to have it scale, to have it succeed. Uh -huh. And so we want to show like, yes, it can be done. That being said, it's very, very difficult. There's going to yeah. be a lot of sacrifices and hard decisions along the way, but, but it's possible. And, and so our hope is that this book will probably be more for entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs, investors, um, folks in the NGO world, the development world, who really want to see a, a, a real life 3D story of this is how it's done. This is what it will require of you. These are the kinds of things that you need to think about. You know, what are all the most valuable business lessons that we learned? So I think similar to, to Start, Love, Repeat, our hope is to be fairly vulnerable and open about the mistakes that were made, um, a lot of the challenges that we had, but to also provide, you know, a lot of uh, encouragement and valuable lessons and practical advice that, that people can take away with them. Gosh, that is great. I look forward to reading it and um, look forward to when it's out. So you said end of July? July of July. Okay. Yes, it'll be on Amazon. Oh, fantastic. Well, congratulations. That is, that's a lot of work on your part. Yes, it is. And I have to say, you know, I had kind of mixed feelings about it when Ned asked me to write the book, because um, I think like many entrepreneurs, spouses, I, I sort of have a love-hate relationship with the business, you know, love, yeah. What, what they're doing. Um, I love the impact they're having. I love how it brings out the best in Ned in terms of his passion and his desire to make a really positive impact in the world and his leadership. And there's so many things I admire about Delight. And yet, you know, so many of the most painful experiences that I've had mm -hmm. in my life are tied to Delight. It has been because of the sacrifices and the choices that we've made for the sake of the company. And, and so I wasn't sure if I was the best person to, to write the book, but um, objectively. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But Ned convinced me that, um, that, that it made sense in terms of, you know, I actually worked for delight for a number of years, still mm -hmm. do some consulting work mm -hmm. for the company. I know a lot of the folks who've been involved over the years. And so it certainly yeah. made it much easier to write the book to, you know, I also did a lot of interviews for this book. Um, so because everybody knew me, it was really easy to get them to sure. share and um, to hear lots of great stories, both good, bad, and ugly. And, yeah. and then to be able to put that together into a really compelling narrative. Yeah. Well, I look forward to it and congratulations. Like yeah. I said, it's, yes. it, it is a birth process much longer than carrying yes. a baby. It is. Yes. <laughs> Well, let's dive into your story. Give us a snapshot of where you are currently, how long you guys have been married, where you're living, children, 
Yes. So we've been married for almost 15 years. We have right. two kids. Uh, so we have one newly christened eight-year-old. He just turned eight. And then another son who is two and a half. And um, currently we live in the San Francisco Bay Area. We, okay. This is home for both Ned and me. We grew up in this area, but we've, if you've read the book, you'll know that um, we've done three stints overseas because of Delight. So we lived in China and Hong Kong for um, about three and a half years. And then we've actually lived in Nairobi, Kenya twice and just returned from Nairobi last summer. So it's been a little less than a year since we've been back in the US. Um, And Delight is now in its, I believe, 14th year. And, you know, I mentioned the 100 million customer milestones. So uh, on the one hand, you know, Delight is certainly out of the startup stage. They have about 1,500 employees around the world, um, I think a dozen different regional offices. The vast majority of the work, as you may imagine, happens in, um, in other parts of the world. So manufacturing's in China, sales are in South and Southeast Asia and throughout Africa, um, a little bit in Latin America and the Pacific and other areas like that. Um, but, you know, there, it also, there are times where it feels like you never leave the startup stage. You know, there's always yeah. risk. Yeah. I think, especially when you're working in emerging markets and developing countries, mm-hmm. it is so incredibly unpredictable what can happen. Um, or you can get hit by a global pandemic and it doesn't matter where your business is and it will hit you hard. Yes. No what you're doing or where you are. But, but certainly over the years, we've discovered that emerging markets are just unstable. And so, yeah. you know, and especially because Delight is global, they're working in so many different places. It is very likely at some, um, at least once a year, if not more often, like one of their core markets will be hit with some kind of crisis. So it could be political instability. It could be a famine. Um, it could be war. It could be, you know, there's all sorts of things. Um, or a virus. <laughs> or a virus, yes. Or, you know, even um, could be very much, you know, man-made crises like in um, India a few years back. They, they, so India is one of Delight's core markets. The, the government decided and announced pretty much overnight that all of their 500 and 1,000 rupee notes, so the bank notes, the money, would no longer be valid by, I think it was the next day or at most. Oh my goodness. Later. And so then you had this mad rush where everybody was going to the banks to try to exchange their old currency for the new currency. And of course the banks ran out and people were just sitting on all this cash that they couldn't use anymore. It was no longer valid. And so, um, so that's, that's something that we talk about in the book where, you know, uh, Delight had been partnering with microfinance organizations to finance their products so that people who are very, very low income could still afford it. So they, you know, maybe just pay um, the equivalent of a few dollars a month mm-hmm. and then they could eventually pay off, you know, a, a larger solar home system, let's say. And, um, and, but suddenly, you know, so they were selling a hundred thousand units a month and then it suddenly went down to zero. Oh my gosh. People had no money. And so they yeah. couldn't pay for anything. It wasn't just, you know, our business that suffered, but it was many, many businesses that suffered. And it was total chaos in India for months on end because of that. So, so I think there, we definitely have this sense of like, we're not out of the woods and I don't know that we will ever be out of the woods, you know, um, and, and it's just kind of the nature of, 
of the work that that delight does um i think i think that's not going to be the case for every startup Mm -hmm. Um, but but this has been our path well i hear you and there is something to acknowledging what is and just saying well this is how it is there's not ever going to be a coast um, mode our business is assisted living, so the virus also has been of great concern for us so far. So good, but we have fallen winter to go, and sure. there's a big question mark of potential, but gosh, working in so many countries, you just have to be nimble and flexible. Does Ned have people in each of these different countries that are... Mm-hmm that manage locally or how does that work in the business? Yeah, yes. So, so that's something that has become easier as Delight has scaled and become a little bit more well-known is that it's become easier to recruit really excellent talent. Mm -hmm. And so um, Ned has a great executive leadership team that he works with that are scattered around the world. And, and then also in each um, region, you know, there's a managing director of, of the various regions, and then there are country directors under them, and then, like, it just, it goes do- on down from there. It's a pretty complex organization at this point, but, um, and what's great is that, you know, it is, it is all local leadership, and so yeah. there are extraordinarily talented managers and leaders within Africa, within Asia, who know the market, who understand the customers better than we ever could. And so it's wonderful to be able to uh, rely on their expertise and to have them contribute in really, really meaningful ways to the team. Hmm. Well, let me back up one step. You said that Delight started when he, was he in graduate school? He was in business school. Mm -hmm. Business school. Okay. Like getting his MBA? Yes. When you and Ned married, what what was your understanding of what work was going to look like? Did you know that he was an entrepreneur or even know what that term was? Yes, although I think I was still extraordinarily naive about what it would mean for us as a married couple. So Ned and I mm-hmm. met as freshmen in college. So we had actually been dating for quite a while already. By the time we got married, we had been together for seven years before we got married. Uh, so, so all throughout college, he had, he had shown symptoms of being an entrepreneur in, <laughs> terms of, in terms of not being able to settle on a major, not really having a clear sense of what he wanted. I mean, he was all over the place and I knew he was really bright. I knew he was a really hard worker. I knew like, he was going to make something of himself, but it was also a little bit concerning because I had my major, I stuck with my major, I graduated with that major, and then I went into that field, you know, and yeah, so I had yeah. a straight path that I followed and his path was nowhere near straight. Um, <laughs> and, and then he, so when he graduated, he um, graduated with a degree in computer science. He was uh, just has a real knack for programming and then um, also a degree in earth systems because he really loved studying about the environment and ecology. Uh, and, but he also loved music. So his first job out of college was as an audio engineer programming for these huge sound mixing consoles that are used um, for 
like movies, film production. Um, and it like, it seems like a great job to me. I was like, it's stable. It's well, like, this is good. <laughs> it's in line with what, you know, and he did it for about six months and then quit with absolutely no idea what he was going to do next because he hated it that much. I mean, it wasn't that there was anything wrong with the company per se, but just, you know, the whole like sitting at your desk coding all day, it, it just really killed his soul. Like it sucked the life out of him, but he had no idea what he wanted to do. Um, so at this point we weren't married yet. So I was like, okay, you go figure it out. And my assumption was he will figure it out by the time we get married. Um, and, and so then he ended up starting a couple of small businesses with other friends and uh, neither of them really took off. And I, I think I kind of assumed that it was him getting this bug out of his system and eventually he would settle down. And, and then he said he wanted to go to business school, which was kind of um, really surprising to me because it, it seemed like, okay, he is doubling down on something. We don't know exactly what, but something yeah. in the business sector. So by then, and so we got married, he started business school. By then, I, I, yeah, I mean, it was clear that Ned really enjoyed being an entrepreneur. He really enjoyed starting new endeavors and that it was something that he was wanting to at least somehow be connected to. So it wasn't necessarily the case that he was sure that he wanted to start a company and it was going to be this and it was going to go this way. Um, but somehow he wanted to be connected to the startup world. And, um, but then, you know, while he was in business school, just uh, joined a class at the Stanford business school. It's actually um, a collaboration between the business school and the design school at Stanford, which is called, um, uh, entrepreneurial design for extreme affordability. So it's all about mm. how do you take the best design principles in the world, like what companies like IDEO use, and apply it to solving some of the most entrenched social challenges in the world for the poorest families in the world. Mm. And, um, and so Ned took this class and just loved it and felt like he had found his place. He had found his people. Uh, so they were put into groups to do a class project. And he ended up with four other folks, three of whom would go on to co-found the company with him. And then another uh, engineer would join later. And, um, and they were trying to design a light that could replace the kerosene lantern. Um, so we've made a little bit of a dent in, in this challenge, but it's still, you know, around almost one and a half million, one and a half billion people in the world rely on kerosene lanterns for light. Wow. They don't have access to electricity or they can't afford it. Even things like flashlights, very unreliable, don't last long enough. And, and so people burn kerosene and it's terrible and it pollutes mm -hmm. a ton. It makes people super sick. It causes fires and it's expensive because you have to constantly be replenishing the kerosene oil that you're burning. So, so their desire was to replace the kerosene lantern. And so they built a prototype for the class. And out of that, the four of them, and then plus the one engineer later decided like, hey, this could be something real. Let's, let's try to turn it into something real. And so by the time he graduated in um, 2007, they had already secured a few hundred thousand dollars in funding and, and were ready to launch. So, so that's how it got started. 
And what is D-Lite exactly? Is it battery powered? So it is all solar powered, meaning solar. that all the products um, are get energy from, from the sun. So they're charged during the day, the products or the solar panel gets put out during the day and then it charges a battery that okay. then can power a, a light or fan or, or television or phone mm -hmm. charger at night or any time of day, really. Um, and, and these products are meant to be extremely durable, uh, actually even better quality than what we have here in the US because you can imagine the kinds of environments that D-Lite's customers live in are really tough. You know, they, mm -hmm. they have dust and dirt and monsoons and, you know, livestock that can come trampling through um, and wild animals and all <laughs> kinds of things. And so they need to be really really tough. And, and so that's what D-Lite has made is extremely high quality, but also affordable products that, um, that people can buy and use for years. Um, and, and then in, in the last couple of years, they've released um, these solar home systems. So it's a larger panel that can be installed on a roof, and then it charges a, a lar larger battery that can then power multiple devices. So, you know, multiple lights, phone charger, radio, TV, and then actually people who are living in these extraordinarily rural areas in Asia or Africa or a Pacific Island, they start to feel like they are living with the electric grid. Like it almost mm. feels the same. Like when you have a reliable source of energy that can power, um, that can power appliances for you where you can watch TV like everyone else, you can charge your phone like everyone else, you can have lights on at night like everyone else. Um, it is extraordinarily life-changing for these families. And so it's incredibly inspiring to be even peripherally a part of what Delight does. But, but yeah, as I've been saying, it hasn't been easy at all. Has not been easy. So it started about 14 years ago mm -hmm. with, did you say five founders? Yes, five, five co-founders. Okay. So tell us about maybe the early stage where, so you, you, they have a concept, then comes proof of concept. Tell us a little bit about that stage trying to yeah. prove this product and being able to sell it and raise it, it, money, I'm sure. It was extraordinarily challenging. So back then, you know, this is 2007, 2008, um, the, the idea of social enterprise was very, very new at that time. So most investors were extraordinarily skeptical. Um, it's they, not a sexy product like Apple or... Right, right. And, you know, most investors wanted them because the more common model is your primary market is a place like the US and Europe. And then you take some of your profits and you siphon that off to help people in developing countries. Okay. Right. But, but they were proposing that, no, like our core market is going mm -hmm. to be uh, what are called base of the pyramid families, right? So mm -hmm. the very, very lowest income families in the world who do not have much money, but there are so many of them. And so it's actually a huge market and they have so few products that are available to them. And so what the Delight team did really well, I feel like is they invested so much. And this was one of the things that they learned through the design class they took was the importance of field testing and customer research. So Every single one of the founders, all five of them, um, spent just 
I mean, the equivalent of probably weeks and weeks and weeks in the field, you know, in places like Cambodia and Myanmar or Burma, um, in Africa, in Nigeria, in Kenya, in Uganda, in Tanzania, um, in all these pretty challenging um, areas that your typical business student wouldn't necessarily travel to, but right. they, they would go and just spend all day and sometimes even all night with these customers, interviewing them, learning about their lives, observing them, um, trying to really, really understand what is it that you need and letting them tell the founders, you know, what is it that I want? What is it that I need? What can I afford? What would I want it to look like? What functionality would I want it to have? What features? Instead of, you know, having us go in and assume that we know because, hey, we're Americans, so somehow that means that we should know more, which is completely <laughs> untrue. And, and so, uh, you know, I, I went on one of these research trips with Ned and his co-founders. And um, I will be honest, that is the only one I've ever done because it was so <laughs> tough. It, they worked um, at least 16 hours a day. And you are out in these completely, you know, these very, very rural remote areas. So it's like no running water, no electricity, no toilets, no, you know, and we're just out there. With Where these did families. you go? And um, I was in India in, in okay. um, Uttar Pradesh. And, um, and then when it gets dark, it is dark, you know, the darkest dark. I have ever seen. Like here in the US, we don't really know what dark is because there's right. always lights on. We've had to know. designate night skies or dark skies yes. to find that yes. anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. And um and so it I mean it was very, very profound to be among those families and to see their lives and for you know, for some of them just how very, very, very tough it is. You know, we yeah. came across one village where the only real work available was um, they would just take axes or hammers um, or even like big sticks and they would just grind down rocks. And that was the only thing that was like the main job available. And so you see old men doing it. We saw middle-aged men doing it and we saw children doing it. Um, And, and so it, it was extraordinarily humbling. And I think it's, it's those kinds of images, but also the images of, you know, how much people's lives change mm-hmm. after they have access to solar power and these solar powered products that have really kept us going over all these years. Because um, otherwise, it, I think it would have been very easy to give up along the way. So, so all that to say, you know, did a ton of customer field research, came out with um, prototype Got funding. I think the the first products were launched in 2008 um, during the summer. The manufacturing was a huge challenge in the beginning of where do we manufacture, who do we manufacture with. Um, eventually, they decided to do it in China, which you know China remains pretty much the best place in the world to to manufacture electronics at mm-hmm. an affordable rate, and they can do it very very well. You just need to you know work closely with the factories to. Uh, ensure that they know um, what it is exactly that you want. So, um, you know, I, <laughs> it's funny because this whole proof of concept, it, it, I mean, it came in stages and it came, uh-huh. it un, 
um, veiled itself over years and years because it's like, okay, well, first there's the product design, then there's the manufacturing, then there's the sales, then there's the marketing, then there's the distribution. And I feel like every step of the way, Delight has had to forge a path because there wasn't necessarily uh, an already worn road that they could travel. And and it was hard, you know, it was not really possible to figure everything out at once. So they kind of just had to do it step by step. A lot of trial and error. Absolutely. Absolutely. Many, many errors mm-hmm. <laughs> along the way. Um, and, uh, and, but, you know, I think it's been through a lot of perseverance. I think a lot of humility as well of being willing to admit when we made a mistake, when we made a wrong call, um, when we need to, you know, go back and totally undo things or redo things. Um, And then, um, and then going forward from there. So you had proof of concept along the way, it took probably several years. Uh, How long would you say before they knew this was viable and maybe raise more money or expand into other markets? Yeah, so I would say that first year, 2008 to 2009, was pretty critical. So that was when um, the uh, initial product came out, which actually was very well received. Um, It was called the Nova. It was a solar-powered light that had, I believe, four different light settings in terms of brightness. Hmm. Um, It was really, really solid. I think... um, our team in India dropped it off of a five-story building and it did fine. It just bounced a little <laughs> bit and then you could still turn it back on and it worked great. Um, and But the problem was that it wasn't very affordable. So it was out of the reach of, okay. of um, many of the customers that we wanted to reach. Um, and at that point, financing wasn't available. So that um, became, over time, it became clearer to us that this question of affordability is huge for, for our customers. But at that time, you know, it was about a $35 product, which is a, a huge amount of money for extremely low income families yeah. that are making, you know, one, two, three, at most $5 a day. And, but they did have seed funding, you know, by, by I think end of summer or around summer of 2008, they had raised about one and a half million dollars in seed funding. So, so that was enough to, to give the company runway for one to two years. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and the product was really well received. um, But it was just a question of, you know, how do we make it more affordable? Mm -hmm. And, um, and so then um, I think it was probably by 2010, you know, and as soon as the product came out, I think it was very clear in everybody's minds that there's something here. Mm-hmm. Um, because when people have the money, they will absolutely go for it. And people mm-hmm. who are able to afford the product and use it, they love it, you know. And so we um, would go do customer satisfaction surveys in various uh, villages. And oftentimes, you know, it'd be something like 95% or more would say that they were extremely satisfied with the product. And so, so there really, I think even from the beginning, wasn't that much a question of, is there a need or is there a demand or do people like it? Those were very, very clear. It was just a question of how do we make it affordable mm-hmm. and how do we get it to them? Um, because distribution is certainly 
and oh extremely challenging question. And as well as sales and marketing and even just letting people know about it, right? Because also at that time, solar was a really new concept in, um, in emerging markets. And, and so a lot of time was spent just explaining to people, mm-hmm. this is how it works. Um, you know, it's different from what you've seen before. I promise you it does work, you know, but, but it's hard. It can feel really, really risky when you have a limited amount of money and somebody's coming in and saying like, Hey, look at this brand new technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just, you don't know. Right. And, and, right. and so to convince people to take that risk, I think to find those early adopters was probably one of the greatest challenges, but once the market started to get seated and people could see like their neighbors or their friends or their family members were using the products and the products were lasting and working well and really making life better for them. Then, um, then I think there was just no question. There was absolutely no question in people's minds. And so then I believe it was in 2010 that, that D light launched its second solar powered light, which was about half the price um, or even less than half the price of the original Nova. It ended up being about like a twelve to fifteen dollar product. Okay. Um, and so then that started to get into a newer segment of the market, where more people could afford it. Um, but I would say it really wasn't until even more recently than that, um, in two thousand sixteen, uh, Delights. From the beginning, they had always wanted to have a five dollar retail solar light. Wow. And it was just really, really hard <laughs> to get down to that price, um, especially back in 2008, 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to some extent, we just had to wait for the technology to improve. Like, so the cost of solar has gone down significantly since 2008. The cost of LEDs, which is, you know, the light source has gone down. Even the batteries, the cost of batteries, the quality of batteries, um, all those things have um have become more affordable, which then of okay. course makes the end product more affordable. And, and I think, you know, we've just had some fabulous product designers who have worked for Delight and worked really, really hard to try to cut every cent possible uh, out of um, the cost of, of uh, building the product. And, yeah. and so then, um, so then Delight is able to pass that savings yeah. onto the customer. So it was in 2016 that they finally, finally were able to launch a $5 solar light. And then that starts to become extremely affordable because even the family who is making one to $2 a day can consider making a $5 investment in something that will pay for itself really quickly because then you don't have to buy kerosene anymore. You don't have to worry Mm -hmm. about the health issues. Um, A lot of shopkeepers use uh, D-Light products to light up their shops and then their shops can stay open for longer and then they can sell more goods and make more money for their family or like farmers can work later into the night if they need to. And so it actually helps enable all of these income generating activities that boost the overall quality of life for the family. Um, so and then inspiring. Yeah. And then I think another huge thing in the delight story has been this question of financing is that, you know, they started working with microfinance organizations in India. And then um, when delight started selling these larger home systems that I was talking about, uh-huh. so those are of course are going to cost more money. Um, but, but they have built financing into it. Um, so in, in Africa, the, it is very, very common to use mobile money, which we're just starting to do here in the U.S., but we are actually years behind huh. Africa. So, um, so 
in, in Africa, you have um, vast numbers of people who do not have access to a bank. They mm -hmm. don't have bank accounts. You know, it used to be that the best they could do for savings was to put money under the mattress, right? And, um, but now with um, a lot of people having, I mean, almost everybody has a mobile phone and then more and more people are getting access to smartphones. But even with like a very simple mobile phone, you can, um, there are companies now that have set up um, systems so that you can basically turn your phone into a bank account. Huh. So you can store money on, on your phone and you can use it to send money to other people. If you need to pay other people, you can go to the store and pay with your phone hmm. um, and you can pay your bills with your phone. And so, so that's the, the infrastructure that Delight is using now where uh, people pay through their phone. And, and so they just pay a very small daily rate of about 25 cents that um, covers the cost of, you know, operating the solar home system. And, wow. but also the money that they pay on a daily rate, or, you know, they could pay ahead if they wanted to, that goes toward paying off the cost of the system. So at some point, usually within one to two years, they own it and wow. they no longer need to make payments. And so then they just have access that is to huge. electricity, free mm -hmm. electricity mm -hmm. um, for years. And they become important people in their community. Yes, yes, <laughs> very much so. Um, so they become ambassadors for Delight. They, some of them have become salespeople for Delight and have done a wonderful job of earning commissions for their family, um, as well as, you know, it allows them to open up businesses. They could charge other people's phones. They could host events. Um, so it, it becomes really invaluable for these yeah. families. But, um, but I think, you know, at, at this point, there's and maybe all along, there just hasn't really been a question of um, will this work or do people want it? It's more just like, can we do it? Can we do it yeah. in the right way and get it to people? Um, and can we find people, um, educate them and, and sell it to them at, in a way that they can afford? Yeah. Oh my goodness. So inspiring. And they'll never run out of customers for sure. Along the way then, or in this early stage of the business, what your work was very different. You were, what were you doing for work? Uh, well, when Ned first started Delight, when he was in business school, I was working in the nonprofit sector. So I worked in the nonprofit sector for a number of years. And then I think right before we moved to China, I was working for a local county government, actually doing affordable housing here in the Bay Area, which so many years later, unfortunately, it's still a huge problem in the yeah. Bay Area. But um, yeah, and so then when when he asked me to move to China with him, obviously that work was not something I could do any longer. And the place that we were moving to in China, a city called Shenzhen, at that time, it's actually developed quite a bit since we were there. Um, but aside from manufacturing related jobs, there wasn't that much available. And I didn't want to teach English. That's something a lot of foreigners do there, but I didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And so then um, I ended up joining Delight and, and working for them as their head of HR and global communications. Um, so that was my first startup experience was working with my husband on his new company in a foreign country. Oh my goodness. When, how far into your marriage or the business was that move to China? 
Yeah, so we had been married for three years, and then the business had been going for about a year and a half. Okay. And from your book, was this the time that was really, became really kind of a crisis for you? Yes, yes. So being in China was an extraordinarily challenging time. I think there were a lot of factors that went into it. Um, one was just being in a new place. It was my first time living in a country outside the U.S. Uh, I'm Chinese American, if, if folks are listening to this and can't see me. Um, so I, I think I went in assuming like, it's fine. I'm Chinese. They're Chinese. It'll be no problem. And, and then I got there and realized that being Chinese American is nothing like being um, a Chinese national. And, and certainly they felt the same about me. And, and so a lot of the Chinese nationals that I ran across in, in Shenzhen just were not particularly kind to me. They were very mm -hmm. harsh about my inability to speak Mandarin. I grew up speaking Cantonese, which is a different Chinese dialect, um, but, you know, didn't matter. What mattered was that I couldn't speak Mandarin. And, you know, I didn't understand the, the customs or the norms. Um, I couldn't read, totally illiterate when it comes to Chinese. And, and so, yeah, people just treated me like an idiot because they looked at me and mm -hmm. they saw somebody who on the outside looked like they should know what they're doing and I didn't and it drove them bonkers and um <laughs> and then also the the fact that I was with um my my husband a lot so Ned is a tall white guy and um it just is not commonly seen there or um or if you do see a Chinese woman with a white man um really the only circumstances under which that happens is if the woman is his interpreter or his secretary um, or his mistress. So, mm. um, so I was treated accordingly. So people would come up to wow. me and ask me to, to interpret or, uh, or they would, you know, try to get me to do grunt work for them or, or they would make assumptions about Ned and my relationship. And it was just, it was not even considered a possibility that we could actually be married. <laughs> wow. So you just, so that, you, that was really hard. That yeah. Was, you felt on the outside on every level. Yes. And then we were of course, very much cut off from our, our family and friends back home. And I was, you know, I still don't know if it was unnecessarily so, but I was pretty paranoid about, um, you know, because the, your communications are very much monitored when you're in China, right? So like emails are read, phone mm -hmm. calls are listened to. Um, and so it just made me really paranoid. It's not something we're used to here and I didn't know how to handle yeah. it. And, um, and so then it made me feel like I couldn't talk openly with people here in the U.S. about how hard things were in China that I wasn't sure if I could freely complain about um, some of the ways in which I felt oppressed. And, um, and so then it became extremely, extremely isolating. And there aren't a lot of expats that live in Shenzhen just because it's not a very expat friendly city. So it's really hard to make friends. And then on top of all that, there was the stress of the startup and the startup yeah. was really, really struggling at that time. You know, there's one story we tell in the book where, um, Delight had received its first container order, which was a huge and momentous victory. And we were all celebrating and it was this, you know, super exciting 
uh, milestone that we were reaching and and we were thinking okay this is it delight's going to take off now because it had just been little orders here and there and yeah. suddenly it's like okay we're sending a, you know um 20, units to east africa this is great and then you know everyone worked their butts off to to finish the products on time to get them on the ship and then about two days later we found out that there was a bug in the code of <sighs> the um of the circuit such that it would drain the batteries and kill oh, no. the batteries before the products could even arrive at oh, their no. destination and so by the time the products arrived in tanzania which was where they were going um they would they were going to be dead completely dead like would not even turn on and um it so it turned from celebration to total crisis morning because, <laughs> yes because there was a sense of if our very first container shipment has a 100 percent failure rate mm. then the company is dead you know like our reputation is shot our oh, brand gosh. is shot like we anything that we are trying to build this company on it's going to be destroyed and so there were weeks of just panic outright panic in the office of what do we do do we like you know once it's out to sea there's only so much you can you can't exactly go like call the ship back because it has tons of containers for other companies and right. um, other products and um you know I, so um i don't want to ruin the story but i will say that we were essentially saved by a miracle <laughs> you have to wait and read the book huh? i know i know but <laughs> it is one of the several times over the life of delight that I, it honestly feels like we were saved by a miracle so it was <sighs> like some paperwork snafu that had nothing to do with us led to the container getting stuck in the middle east and so it like couldn't even make it to east africa and it was stuck in the middle east for so long um, and at such high temperatures, right? So you can imagine like inside a container, you know, outside it's maybe 100 degrees, 110 degrees. Inside the container, it could get up to like 130, 140. Oh my goodness. That is enough to fry pretty much sure. any battery. Yeah. So, um, so, the <laughs> so the products were going to be dead no matter what, even without that bug. And, um, and so it may have been the first time that we all celebrated you know, the product's dying. <laughs> but it's like, you know, they died before we thought they were going to die. Um, but it they wasn't died because of, of natural causes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and so then we were able to recall the container, fix up all the products, fix the circuit, put in new batteries, ship, reship it out to the customer. And they were actually working when they arrived and the customer is happy. Anyway, so that, um, it was those kinds of things that we were dealing with in our first year living in huge, China. huge. And it was, oh you goodness. know, like things like Ned would go into the factory in the middle. Of the, I mean, they were like, the factory would be going 24 hours a day and to try to help get the, um, the units out faster, you know, even people who had nothing to do with manufacturing or engineering would go in and work on the, on the factory line to try to help out. Um, and then certainly there's always a question as is the case for almost every startup of managing cash, yeah. trying not to run out of money, mm -hmm. um, hiring new people, um, 
you know, it's, and like hiring new people in, in new countries. So we were in China, Ned's business partner was starting a sales office in India. So he was doing hiring in India and dealing with all kinds of stuff there as well. Um, but it's just, there's so much newness and so much mm -hmm. uncertainty and so much, we have no idea what we are doing. I mean, every day was an exercise in not knowing what we were doing. <laughs> and so the stress of all of those things, of the business, of um, being isolated in a foreign country, of being treated really poorly by the Chinese nationals, um, it, it just, um, it became too much for me. And so less than a year after we moved there, I crashed and burned mm -hmm. and had um, just fell into a very, very deep and dark depression. And I think there was a lot of anxiety in there too, because it got to the point where um, I, I had, I basically couldn't work. It was really hard for me to interact with people. I didn't even want to leave our apartment anymore yeah. because I felt like just stepping outside the door was not safe. Somebody was going to start yelling at me for something that I didn't even know I had done. And so it, it was extraordinarily difficult. And, um, and it was one of those moments where it felt like, okay, Ned, you got to choose me or you got to choose the business. Mm. Um, and I think at that stage in our marriage, it still seemed to me like these dichotomous choices were a real thing. Um, mm -hmm. I have come to understand since then that it's usually not so black and white. Um, right. and, and but it feels like it. It does. And for a lot does. of startups, you know, we refer to them as the mistress sometimes Absolutely. because it's yes. th that, uh, that business gets more attention and time sometimes than the yes. spouse. Yes. And more love. It can feel like and more love. Uh, yes. How did you guys address that? How did you meet that crisis? Yeah. Well, it became apparent that Remaining in China was not sustainable for me, that I was just going to completely lose my mind mm -hmm. if we stayed there for too much longer. And also, you know, you can imagine in a place like Shenzhen, there just weren't many resources in terms of like therapists and counselors and support groups. And I mean, there just wasn't anywhere for me to go. Yeah. Uh, so we were on our own and we didn't even really have friends that we could turn to. And but then Ned felt like he had to stay in China for the sake of the business, that, that the office in China wasn't strong enough yet in terms of its own management and leadership for him to be able to, to step away. So thankfully, I do have a very creative uh, and innovative husband. And so he was able to find sort of a middle ground, a compromise that worked for both of us, which was um, after, I mean, it still took a while for it to come to fruition. So about eight months after I first crashed. Wow, that's a long time. in our apartment. Yeah, yeah, it, it was a long time. Um, he found a way to sort of um, finesse the business strategy such that he could justify opening a new office in Hong Kong, which is just across the border from okay. Shenzhen. And, um, and then he could commute, still commute into Shenzhen if he needed to, but we could live in Hong Kong. And um, if anybody's ever been to that part of the world, you'll know mm -hmm. that Hong Kong, because of its long history as a British colony, feels completely different from mainland China. So the vast majority of people who live there speak English and Cantonese, which is the language I grew up with. Okay. Um, it's a much more... Uh, cosmopolitan city, you know, seeing a Chinese woman and a white man together is nothing like nobody will even blink at that. Um, 
And, and there's just a lot more there in terms of like, I could actually find a therapist in Hong Kong. Mm. And I did, I started, I just started seeing a therapist almost as soon as we got there. And, and it was a lot easier to make friends. There are lots and lots of expats from all over the world who live in Hong Kong. Um, and we could find, you know, a good, really good church community, which we had a lot of trouble doing in China, which didn't even really, really feel safe to do in China. So there were just yeah. so many more opportunities for community, for support that were opened up to us in Hong Kong. And yet Ned could still continue to support the Shenzhen office. Um, so we, we moved to Hong Kong and ended up living there for almost two years. And, wow. um, and that was a really positive experience. I mean, by the end of it, I could I admit that we were both ready to come home. That was, mm -hmm. you know, we, we had a, started our family soon after that, but we made some lifelong friends in Hong Kong who we're still in touch with. Hong Kong is actually where I started my writing career. Um, it's where I met my first writer friends and oh. got some of my first articles published. And, and so it ended up becoming a really, really special experience. And I think the fact that Ned, you know, it's funny, like in, I think sometimes in, in the world of romance, you know, you hear talk of grand gestures mm -hmm. and I don't know that most people would think of it as a grand gesture, but, but I've always seen it as like, that was probably one of the best grand romantic gestures mm -hmm. that Ned has ever done for me in terms of he knew how much I was struggling. I knew how important the business was to him. And yet he basically rewrote their business plan so that he could find an out for me. Yeah. Um, so that I could be well again. Mm. And um, while also still doing his business. So he wasn't right. quite ready to let go of that. But, but the fact that we were able to make it work, I think um, it was a huge turning point for, for the business. But for us as a couple in recognizing that, you know, like you said, it, it's not necessarily one or the other. You don't always have mm -hmm. to choose. Sometimes you can find a compromise that actually does work for both of you. And, um, and I think it for us, built this really strong sense, just a greater sense of partnership and of mutual sacrifice that it wasn't just, you know, I'm the one who's giving up everything for Ned and his business, yeah. but also the, the acknowledgement that, yeah, there's a lot that Ned's willing to give up for me too. There's like, he's willing to open a new office and make all these hires and spend all this company money. And, you know, I could talk about it now because it's been so many years, you know, yeah. for a while we didn't really want to <laughs> talk about it too publicly in case Ned got in trouble. But I mean, he did a lot so that we could be in Hong Kong and, um, and I could kind of get, get a fresh start. Well, and, and I'm so grateful for his wisdom and being able to do that and for your courage in asking for what you needed and even to write about it in your book. I, I love, again, that you were so vulnerable because talking about depression, anxiety is, is not easy to admit, to have that vulnerability, but thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, of course. I think it illuminates also another one of the challenges of why entrepreneur marriage is harder than some because had your marriage not made it, that would have had an impact on the business. Mm, sure. Absolutely. Whereas somebody works for doing whatever they do, if they go through a divorce, it doesn't affect their job. Mm -hmm. But uh, a business could lose 
you know, they have to split the profits now with an ex-wife or ex-husband. That changes the growth trajectory a lot. Yeah, so. yeah. And certainly, you know, the, the health and well-being of the entrepreneur is mm-hmm. going to be deeply impacted if they have a crisis in their family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even, you know, some hard-nosed venture capitalists admitted to me like, yeah, I, I want to know what's going on in the personal life of the entrepreneurs that I invest in because I know that there is a direct link between how well is your marriage and family doing and how well is the business going to perform? Because yep. if, um, if the entrepreneur is, is really, really struggling at home, I mean, mm-hmm. he or she can't help but you know, bring that into the workplace. Absolutely. I hear it over and over from entrepreneurs that say much of their success is because of their spouse and their support. And whether yes. they physically work in the business or whether they are there just helping to manage things at home or carrying a second job until Mm -hmm. the business is profitable. Just many ways that the spouse is vitally important. And I really, really hope, and I I know you tell this um, to them as well, but I just really hope that they, they let their spouses and family members and friends and other supporters know and that they thank them for the role that they've played in allowing um, the entrepreneur to s- pursue their dreams and yeah. um, and to build this business um, because that it makes just such a such a huge difference and mm-hmm. you know even though I would say my time working with Delight was pretty limited um, that's another thing I've really appreciated about Ned is that he's always said you know this is your company too you helped yeah. build this company too you're essentially part of the founding team and even when I wouldn't have said that about myself like he's he's willing to say that very freely and and it mm. it's very affirming of you know even though a lot of what I did for delight was behind the scenes and wouldn't ever be considered officially part of the business it's still essential and and I think that's the case for for pretty much every entrepreneur spouse oh yeah and, and so great that he can verbalize that now mm. and just to reiterate that you know if someone is listening and you haven't give an appreciation to your spouse, you know, pull your head up above the water long enough to, to look yeah. around and see the things that they're doing. It's, you're right. That's, there's been some research done on um, successful entrepreneur couples and showing appreciation mm-hmm. is, is huge. Yes. Yeah. Dorcas, I am mindful of the time I have a lot more questions (laughs) and (laughs) I think I said before I hit record, you know, I could talk with you for hours. It just is so refreshing to have this kindred spirit. So we might have another one. I I wanted to talk some about um, personality and you talk about that in your book and that Mm -hmm. may be a whole episode because I too think that that's very important. But I want to ask you this, just as a way of bringing it back to the entrepreneur marriage and knowing that you and Ned have really worked at it. And we haven't gotten into that piece, but you guys did get into some coaching and you've done different counseling. What do you guys do to maintain the fun, friendship, and intimacy in your marriage? Mm. What are some things you've learned to do over the years? Yeah, well, I think one major shift that I had to make from 
earlier on in our marriage um, was the recognition that if if I wanted to have fun with my spouse or you know maintain our our friendship and our intimacy that it wasn't just going to happen by itself. I think I for many years just thought well. It, it'll just happen. It'll, we can be spontaneous. spontaneous. We can, yeah. And it just, it sounds so great, right? Or he'll um, initiate it. Yes, exactly. Uh, but, but the reality is, and I think especially when you have a startup in the family, is that there, there's not much room for spontaneity. Mm-hmm. And both of you are so tired and overstretched. And so I have really come to appreciate the idea of intentionality. And it does take a little bit of the spark out of things, but yeah. it doesn't make it necessarily any less fun or any less important. Um, so for years now, Ned and I have been doing weekly date nights. Um, I have to say Love we that. have not been keeping it up during the pandemic because we're stuck yeah. at home with two young children and no one to help us. Yes. And, and I feel it though. I mean, so this is probably the longest we've gone without a date night in years. And I, I feel it. And um, so, so we would, um, yeah, every, every week um, try to go out. And this was even before we had kids, we would do a date night and, and really try to be present to one another, not, you know, not answer phones, not check email. Um, and, and I think that those, and not only that, so it's something, it's one thing to, to be sitting across the table from each other at dinner or, or watching a movie together, but it's another to really use that time well. So we've also, um, we will intentionally use that time together to check in with one another <clears throat> and, um, and to ask, you know, because it can be very easy to fall into a conversation of talking about the business, talking about my work, talking about the kids. Um, but we really try to use that time for each other and, and for our relationship. And so we, um, for a long time, have, have asked one another the question of, you know, during this past week, what have been your highs and what have been your lows? And Love it's a really, that. really mm-hmm. simple question. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I love it because it actually opens you up to so much more. You know, you start with the right. listing of like, oh, this is what happened and this is what, but then it leads to, and this is how I felt about it. And then this is why I felt that way about it. And then this is, you know, why it's important to me. And this is what I think I'll do going forward. But it it takes the conversation in a really, um, it can go in many different directions, but it also goes deeper. And I feel like yeah. every time we have one of these conversations, there is kind of a new aspect of Ned that gets revealed. And, um, and I think that's part of what it is to keep it fresh and interesting, right? Is that we are very complex human beings. And no matter how long you have been married to somebody, I would bet that there is always going to be something about them that you have yet to discover. And, And so to have that sense of curiosity about one another of like, huh, I'm sure there's more, you know, <laughs> and, and so to ask those questions uh-huh. of each other, um, you know, the, I mentioned this in Start, Love, Repeat, but the New York Times had published this list of 36 questions that yeah. you can ask somebody, and it's designed to be, you know, if you're dating someone, it helps you, it's supposed to accelerate the getting to know you process, and right. so it's these very um, deep questions that, that normally we would not ask somebody that we're dating, right, like, what are your greatest fears? What are your greatest hopes? How do you feel about dying? You know, those, those sorts of things. Um, and, and even 
people who have been married don't necessarily know that about one another. Mm -hmm. So there were mm -hmm. a few date nights where Ned and I took that list of questions and we asked it of one another. And, and again, there were all these new things about yeah. each other that we discovered. And we were both like crying by the end of the night, but in a really good way, you <laughs> yeah. know, talking about just things that were so important to us and so close to our hearts. Mm -hmm. And, um, and those kinds of conversations don't just happen. Those conversations don't happen spontaneously. And so I have really held on to those moments as being extraordinarily precious in our relationship. And those are the kinds of things that bind you together. That it's like, it knows me like nobody else in the world mm -hmm. knows me. Um, and, and I think it's the same for him. And, um, and so that, that's kind of the glue that holds us together, even when, the forces of, you know, stress and trying to raise kids and the business and all this stuff like those things, it can feel like it's trying to pull us apart. Um, mm -hmm. But, but if we have a strong enough glue, then, then that can, um, that can really keep us together through all of those hardships. And I think it also really helps that Ned and I, the foundation of our relationship is friendship. So we started off as friends before we dated. And, and so it has been true from the beginning that we've never been able to take ourselves too seriously around one another. Um, <laughs> and, and so I think that that really helps too, as just being able to laugh at ourselves, being able to laugh at one another in a kind way. Yeah, um, yeah. And and just finding finding the humor in um, I don't know I mean you all know that the startup life is it's ridiculous I mean it's it's stressful and it's crazy and it's meaningful but there are times when it's just ridiculous too yeah, and so yeah. to be able to laugh at those moments right I mean that's oh, yeah. how HBO was able to make yeah. a, a show out of it right because it's just it's yeah um, yeah. Not not take it too seriously or too personally at times um, right. to just know sometime last night at dinner, uh, Mark's phone rang and he ignored it the first time and it wasn't a, num a number that he recognized. So it rang again and his mom lives in an independent living. I don't, I think we both thought we better answer it. So he took oh. it and I don't even know how this person got his number, but it was a conversation as we're trying to have dinner about something that was work-related. And there was a time when I would have been irritated, uh, but I was able to let it go. There are things yeah. you learn along the way. You learn what's important to pay attention yes. to and, and have conversations about setting boundaries about different things. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, what you said about friendship, you know, I hear a lot of people talk about soulmates. They just believe, you know, they're looking for their soulmate. And soulmates are, they're not necessarily born, they're developed mm -hmm. as we intertwine, like you said, all those pieces over the years and keep being curious with each mm -hmm. other. On a parting note, what would you say to your pre-launch selves, knowing mm -hmm. what you know now? Oh, I think, can I just give my pre-launch self my book? <laughs> I think the easiest Absolutely. Thing. I'm so glad she wrote it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's hard to narrow it down to one thing, you know, because yeah. mm -hmm. I, 
on the one hand, I think there is some grace in how clueless I was because I don't think I would have jumped in with both feet in the same way. Because I am a person who lives with a lot of fear mm-hmm. and anxiety. I am not a risk, high risk person like like Ned is, which is probably why we're a good balance for each other. On the other hand, yeah, I think you know if I had to know something before it all started, I think it would have been more about myself. Um, that I did not fully understand. There were very, very clear warning signs, even before we moved to China, before Ned started Delight, um, that I was prone to overworking and burnout. I was prone Mm. to depression and anxiety, Um, but I ignored all those warning signs and I didn't take them seriously. And so as a result, there have been many times along the way that I have pushed myself way too hard um, or been too hard on myself. And it led to a very high cost for me emotionally, for sure. Um, but I think also, you know, the toll that it took on Ned on our marriage, um, some of the ways that it's kind of impacted even our family today. Um, you know, it's not like I have said goodbye to anxiety forever. Right. It, it's something actually uh-huh. I still live with today. But I wish I, wish I had known that more about myself and that I had paid attention to those warning signs and I had learned better what it meant to pace myself. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I think when you're, cause we started this when we were in our twenties, I think at that time it's so easy to feel invincible and to right. feel like nothing can take you down. And yet there's also this odd urgency of, you know, I need to accomplish everything before I'm 35, which is totally ridiculous. You know, I'm way past 35 now and like, no, there's still so much life to be lived, you know? So, so I think that that kind of longer perspective would have been really helpful, but would I have listened? I don't, I don't know if I would have. <laughs> that was my I, next question. Would yeah, you have listened? Yeah. I, I mean, I think I just, I had such a strong image of who I wanted to be, whether I really was that person. But I, you know, I wanted to be the go-getter. I wanted to be the person who could do anything I set my mind to, right? Mm-hmm. It's like what we tell ourselves. It's what we tell our children. And And to come to this place of recognizing that I have a lot of limitations, but it's okay. It's okay that I have limitations. I can still do a lot. I am still a whole person, even Mm -hmm. with my limitations, right? Um, It's been an extraordinarily painful journey to get to this place of being able to say that and truly believe it. And, um, and I just, I would have loved if I had had a little bit more awareness of that at the time, but, but it's also a hard truth. And so when you're 20 Mm -hmm. something, you don't want to hear that. Yeah. Um, and it, it may just be something that you have to learn through experience. That may be so. And I think you and I have a common interest in, um, you know, there was a, I guess you would call it a fable, a village, somebody, a villager noticed a dead baby floating down the river or a baby floating down the river and they go to rescue it. And pretty soon there's more babies and they're trying to rescue all these babies. And somebody finally says, why don't we go upstream and see where all these babies are coming from? I think you and I have a, a deep passion because of what we've been through to try to go upstream to provide resources that may save some of the pain. Yeah. I think if we're going to grow, we, we grow because we hit challenges, right? So, mm-hmm. We're going to face challenges, but are we equipped to do it? 
um, the personality piece may be something that we'll come back to if you're willing to have another conversation, because it's one that Mark and I both feel very deeply that the more you know yourself, Mm -hmm. and that goes for the entrepreneur and the spouse, um, the more tools you have, healthy tools for growing. Well, if someone wants to get a hold of you, reach you, what is the best way to reach you, Dorcas? Yeah, there are many ways to reach me. Uh, you can come to my website, which is changtosen.com. I'm also on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, and Twitter. Um, so any of those, I check on okay. those regularly, and I love hearing from folks, so please Great. do reach out. I will put those in the show notes. I want to thank you again today for your time. Thank you again for sharing your story and sharing this book. And I hope it is a a great piece of hope and equipping for couples who are starting their journey a little earlier in. So let's talk again. Sure. This was delightful. (laughs) (laughs) I could resist that. Anyway, thanks again so much, Dorcas. Yeah, thank you, Kathy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks so much for listening. You can always find a complete transcript on my website at kathyrushing.com. That's Kathy with a K, rushing.com. If you haven't already, why don't you subscribe to the podcast through my website or your favorite podcast platform? It's always free and you'll never miss an episode. And speaking of episodes, I'm going to try something new, starting with this one, my interview with Dorcas. Um, My good friend Jason consumes a lot of podcasts and he recently told me that he doesn't really care about the story, which is what I really love, but I get it. There are different ways that people consume information. He likes to get information and actionable tips that he can use as a business owner, husband, and dad. Mark and I had been talking about doing recap episodes, highlighting takeaways from the interview, or sometimes maybe going a little deeper on a topic that came up. Jason's comment confirmed our idea about this, so I'll be rolling out these shorter episodes a few days after each interview. They'll be called In a Nutshell, So if that interests you, just look for those titles in the episode list. Well, that's it for now. Remember, you're building a life together. Make it a great one. See ya.